Software investing requires a deep understanding of the market and an ability to predict what changes might occur in the near future. At the level of core infrastructure, software investing is particularly difficult. Databases, virtualization, and large-scale data processing tools are all complicated, highly competitive areas. As the software world has matured, it has become apparent just how big these infrastructure companies can become. Consequently, the opportunities to invest in these infrastructure companies have become highly competitive. When a venture capital fund invests into an infrastructure company, the fund will then help the infrastructure company bring their product to market. This involves figuring out the product design, the sales strategy, and the hiring roadmap. A strong investor will be able to give insight into all of these different facets of building a software company. Vivek Saraswat is a venture investor with Mayfield, a venture fund that focuses on early to growth stage investments. And Vivek joins the show to talk about his experience at AWS, Docker, and Mayfield, where he currently works. And he also talks about broad lessons around how to build infrastructure companies today. It was an enjoyable show, and I enjoyed talking to Vivek, as I always do. I hope you enjoyed as well. Vivek Saraswat, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Glad to be here. Thanks very much, Jeff. You've worked at several infrastructure companies. In 2013, you were at AWS working on Elastic Block Storage. And like me, you worked there less than a year. Tell me about your experience at Amazon. Yeah. You know, in many ways, I really enjoyed working at Amazon. So I was on the the EBS team, and specifically, I worked on snapshots and on scheduling for snapshots. The thing that I enjoyed most about Amazon, I was, I was up in Seattle, is just how strongly Amazon believes in its culture. Number one, if you look at Amazon, Amazon has a set of leadership principles, and Amazon believes very, very heavily in those leadership principles to the point that when you're interviewing at Amazon, the questions that are asked reflect those leadership principles and people look for those leadership principles in your in your answers as a candidate. That's something you, you probably remember from your time at Amazon as well. And when you're in meetings, people really look at those leadership principles, things like bias for action and how they act. I think a lot of companies have values, but those values are often just there. They're somewhere on the website or somewhere in the employee handbook and people don't necessarily live by them. But but Amazon's leadership principles are actionable and they're something that people use on a daily basis. And so when I'm talking with my founders, I always, you know, bring back those leadership principles as an example of something to use for their values, something to live by and something for their employees to actually use. So that's number one. The other thing that I really respect about Amazon is just the laser sharp focus on being customer first. I mean, everything is about making customers more successful and more effective. Whether it's as a product person, it's really this this, this focus on the, the looking backwards principle. So like when you're creating a new product, you start with where is the vision of, you know, you know what is this product at scale from a customer perspective? So you're, you're giving an example of like what an effective customer looks like when the product is finished and working at scale, and then working backwards to what is the MVP of that product. But everything takes that approach of what the customer's approach to using the product should be. And then everything you look at are the customer metrics around that product, the customer use case around that product. So again, it's always about making the customer successful. So I think, you know, those are the things that I respected most about the company. And those are the pieces that I take away the most. Do you have any sense for how the AWS side 
compares to the marketplace side? I worked on the marketplace. Yeah, side. I mean, now it's been gosh, seven seven years almost. It's 2020 already, huh? Since I've been there, so I, I you know I know that things have changed quite a bit. Back at that time, when you mean marketplace, I don't know if you mean the retail marketplace or you, you're talking just non AWS. Yeah, so there was definitely a bit of a divide in culture back then that AWS was more of the sort of typical IT tech culture in many ways. It brought in a lot of folks who came from the tech IT world, but still instituted a lot of the the Amazon culture. And so AWS was kind of a little insulated from the Amazon mothership in the, in the way it was run in, in some ways. And I think that AWS is more integrated in Amazon than it used to be nowadays, particularly as, as a much, much, much bigger organization. But I think in the earlier days, that that's kind of what it was like at the time. Hmm. After AWS, you were at VMware. Do you have a sense for how VMware responded to the market for cloud computing? It's an interesting question. I think very, very early days, VMware was very focused on the on-prem market and, you know, maybe didn't, and initially hadn't seen the transition to cloud as quickly as AWS clearly saw the, the sort of cloud native market. VMware did see that. And actually what, what VMware saw was, you know, the focus on hybrid clouds. So VMware created what was first called VCS, vCloud Hybrid Service, and then what was then known as vCloud Air, which is how you basically make a service that runs in the cloud, but then allows you to shift applications between your on-prem service and cloud. But it was almost too ahead of its time. And now you look and you see AWS Outpost, you see Azure Stack, you see Google Anthos, and you see those services are, are pretty core today. But this is 2014, I think, when vCloud Air was there, and it was almost too early. So I think that VMware saw the cloud and, you know, at the time hadn't, hadn't responded as quickly as AWS and, and Azure and, and then Google had built. But, you know, to be fair, I don't think a lot of people saw just how quickly and how big a giant the clouds were to become and the kind of investment you needed to really go and be a cloud giant. You know, it took a large amount of investment just to compete in those markets. VMware has innovated, though, and has, and has built some, you know, pretty amazing things in the meantime and some amazing services in the form of software-defined storage with vSAN and software-defined networking. So, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't count them out. They've built some, some incredible innovations. I, you know, I enjoyed my time at VMware quite extensively. I was there working first on storage and then working on right around when I was there in the first 2014 and 2015 was right when containers started to become really big and saw, for me, I saw that this would become had the potential to become like the new standard for next generation applications, started finding the like-minded people who believed in that and telling that to anybody else who would listen. And I formed VMware's cloud native storage applications product initiative. So we started working on making persistent data work for containers back in those early days and started building some really interesting innovations around that area. How closely have you been following the consolidation of VMware and Pivotal and Dell? Yeah, I mean, I was there when Dell made the initial acquisition of EMC and, and VMware before I moved on to Docker. And then since left, I've been, I've been following some of that acquisition. I haven't been as close to what's been happening with Pivotal and VMware. But, you know, I know that I think one of the big things that's happening internally or that I see at VMware is just with the focus on DevOps, the market is moving closer to being you know, organizations needing to be closer to developers. And I think the consolidation of Pivotal and, and VMware has helped 
bring more developer DNA within the company. And I think that's going to be good, really, really good for the culture of the organization. I think early VMware was very developer focused and then shifted more to an enterprise IT structure organization. And we saw that within the cloud native group at VMware, this need to focus more on developers. And I think Pivotal you know, helped bring in some of that talent within the organization. So now I think that consolidation really helps bring that together. When you were at VMware, I believe that the product roadmap was impacted directionally by OpenStack. Do you have a sense for why OpenStack did not become the thriving Kubernetes ecosystem that we have today? I think this is one of the biggest debates of the cloud native world over the last couple of years. You know, why OpenStack went a certain way, whereas Kubernetes is growing quite heavily, you know, and we'll see how things go. But it's certainly the signs are very, very positive. It's a very thriving ecosystem, right? But, you know, why one thing seems to have gone a certain way and one thing seems to have gone another. I've heard a lot of people talk about this. I think my take is that there's two reasons. One is that OpenStack had a lot of cooks in the kitchen very early on. And you can say that the core primitives of OpenStack never really had the chance to be built out to be successful because there are so many cooks in the kitchen, so many vendors trying to make their individual implementations of the primitives, you know, the compute, storage, networking, et cetera, their vendor implementations of those primitives successful. So, the, you know, you have so many vendors pushing it in different directions that the core technologies never really had the chance to be truly successful. That's number one. Number two, and, you know, I always try to think about use cases and value propositions. I think when OpenStack came about, it never was really clear what the true value proposition of OpenStack was. Was the desire to build AWS on-prem? Was the desire to build a vSphere competitor in a, in a world where most people were happy with using their vSphere software at the time? You look at Kubernetes in comparison, and well, actually, let's take a step back. You look at containers first. The first use case of containers is actually pretty clear. It was application and component versioning was actually the very first use case. And that took off like crazy. Developers loved that use case. And then you know everything around microservices and the cloud-native world exploded. You look at what Kubernetes is doing, it becomes application and cluster management and, and orchestration for next generation applications. And that has exploded as well. In a world where multi-cloud has taken off, hybrid cloud has taken off. So there's kind of a right time, right place. But I think most importantly to the question of cooks in the kitchen, early on in Kubernetes lifecycle, there was a very strong player that was helping to govern Kubernetes in the form of Google, and then made sure that the core primitives of Kubernetes were strong. The core infrastructure within Kubernetes was strong. And then, you know, various other folks have come in and helped build out the ecosystem around Kubernetes. But internally, I think the structure of Kubernetes is very strong. And that's what I think helped to give Kubernetes the fighting chance that it needed to be successful. VMware is a great example of a company that built a core infrastructure product for enterprises and then managed to keep a heavy presence within enterprises and sell more and more products. What did you learn about the process of market expansion from your time at VMware? That's an interesting question. I think there's there's a couple of thoughts there. So there's expansion within a customer and there's market expansion. So those, those are actually two different questions. And one's tactical and one's strategic. Let's talk about the strategic question of market expansion. So, 
You take a product like vSphere, vSphere served a set of use cases around application management and orchestration, and it served that very successfully and generated billions of dollars of revenue for the company. And the use case was quite simple. With virtualization, you could take a server, you could dice it up, and you could serve far more applications than you used to be able to serve. That maybe hit a certain wall within, within a customer or within a set of customers. Talk about market expansion. VMware, you know, with a set of increasing technical innovations, created two interesting market expansion opportunities in the form of software-defined storage and software-defined networking. One of those was a major acquisition in the form of NYSERA, which then became NSX, that's software-defined networking. And the other was more internal. There were some, some hiring acquisitions, but the, the product was internal in the form of vSAN, which is a software-defined storage. But ultimately, those are market expansions. So those provided brand new territories of expansion within the market, but that allowed to expand revenue within individual customers. So within the same customer base, you could provide brand new products. So that's an example of how they created brand new market expansion opportunities you know, within the customer. Tactically, you know, and this is probably relevant to startups, is how you think about customer expansion. So as you're expanding within a customer, you want to think about opportunities about you know, how you can land an initial deal within that customer, you know, find a use case that's really resonating with them, land that initial POC at a certain price, and then expand within that customer, either through the same use case, but expand the amount of usage you're getting out of that customer, you know, land within additional sites, land additional usage within that same site, or expand additional use cases. So, you know, additional products, additional areas. So that's something more tactical at a smaller company. In a smaller company, you may not have three product lines. You probably only have one product line when you're just getting started. But being able to think along that same lines, how can you land that initial deal and how can you expand, that's pretty critical in almost any enterprise business. After VMware, from 2015 to 2018, you were at Docker. And three years at Docker during the container orchestration wars, you saw a lot of blood, I'm sure. A lot of blood was shed in, in the container orchestration wars. What was it like being inside Docker in those years and, and seeing just so many people were investing in their own container orchestration tools. Enterprises seemed like they were not yet ready to adopt container orchestration yet because they were kind of waiting for the market to consolidate around a particular container orchestration solution. What's your recollection of the container orchestration wars? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Like in, in hindsight is often 2020, people say, hey, look, we can see like where, where the world is now so very clearly. But back then, it really wasn't clear what was going to succeed or what was going to win. As a product manager, my job was to make customers successful. And so I spent my time you know, understanding, and again, as a product manager, your job is really to have empathy for your customers. So, you know, you mentioned that customers are waiting and looking for solutions. Customers weren't actually really waiting. They were in pain, right? They were looking for solutions to solve their problems of how they would manage their applications at scale. That was where customers were. And so for them, they were giving us a set of requirements around how do we manage applications in a distributed fashion? And, you know, how, as an, in particular, you look at the buyer and there were IT folks and they were trying to help their developers succeed at building and managing those applications. And so for us, you know, it started with, okay, how do we build them in a way, you know, in particular in the enterprise world, they were helping sort of new 
developers get to cloud native applications quickly who didn't already understand how to use applications. So this is an interesting insight, I think. Today, it's easy when you go into like the Silicon Valley world and you understand how to build microservices and cloud native apps, but if you don't understand how to build microservices, 12-factor apps, et cetera, it's really, really hard to actually do that successfully. And in fact, I mean, you know, just as an aside, as an investor, that's one of the things that I'm looking for like, like right now in terms of startups is people that make it easy to help developers build like microservices and cloud-native applications. That's still very much an unsolved problem, I think, in the, in the world of Kubernetes and in cloud-native apps. Going back to the point, though, this is something that, you know, enterprises were in pain and trying to solve for. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, the, the team was solving for, you know, on the open source side with Swarm was, was in building, you know, a simple way to get containers and, and next generation applications running. The Ruby on Rails of container orchestration. That, that's an interesting way to put it, I think, in, in many ways. It's give people a simple way to get things done at the, the sacrifice of some level of, level of complexity. Ultimately, though, you know, as a you know, on the enterprise side of the like of the product, my job is to give people what they want, right? And so, we built the product. We gave folks a product that consisted of open source swarm plus several integrations on security, CI/CD integrations with networking, storage, etc., and sort of like a pipeline all the way from the developer through to the IT operations manager managing the application at scale. And then eventually, you know, folks were starting to use Kubernetes at scale, and we added Kubernetes to the enterprise product as well. And we were actually running Swarm and Kube side by side on the same cluster. And you could choose which orchestrator and you wanted to use. This is actually in the same cluster. You could choose which orchestrator you wanted to use. Now, we were actually running three orchestrators side by side, Swarm Classic, Swarm Kit, and Kubernetes, which was a testament to the skills of the engineering team at Docker. So, you know, long story short, it wasn't clear at the time, like, what people wanted or what people were going to use. And we were just sort of reacting to market needs at the time and building the product that people wanted to see. Why did Kubernetes win? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question as well. I think it comes down to, you know, the ecosystem, right? I think there's a strong ecosystem that's been built around Kubernetes, and it's been incredibly successful. And I think ultimately when you look at anything within the world of open source and within infrastructure, ecosystem drives everything, right? And one advice to, you know, anyone building companies out there is you have to build a thriving ecosystem. Even with actually closed source products, ecosystem also drives everything. Take a look at even products like Slack. They all have, they have thriving integrations across a number of different products, right? You look at products that are built across integrations, like Zapier, for example. It's all about building integrations. You look at products like Okta. It's all about building integrations. So I think how you build your ecosystem in the enterprise world is extremely important. And I think Kubernetes is no exception. It's built an incredible ecosystem. And that ecosystem is composed of both software integrations as well as people. I was recently at KubeCon you know, back in the fall, and there was, what, 13,000 people at KubeCon from 8,000 years before. It's just incredible. It's incredible to see that kind of energy. And so, you know, hats off to the CNCF and the folks for, for building that, that amazing ecosystem. What about Mesos? Why didn't Mesos win? I mean, Mesos had community adoption, had enterprise adoption. I mean, I think, again, it comes down to, well, a combination of things. And you could argue that each of the orchestrators had their use cases, have their use cases. Mesos is still used by players in various places. Swarm is still used by players in various places. Kubernetes is used. Nomad is used. Kubernetes is probably with the most flexible of orchestrators. So it's used across the widest set of use cases. But it does have the strongest overall ecosystem. 
It had a set of strong players who were help guiding it. It has a good, the CNCF has done a great job in backing and guiding Kubernetes as well. And I think that's played a, a hand in it being quite successful. The container orchestration wars were an indication that companies have a strong desire to go through a replatforming. There's a replatforming or modernization that companies are going through at this point constantly. It's modernization. And one way of organizing this within a company is by defining a central platform engineering team. If you were managing a platform engineering team at an average enterprise, what would be the baseline level of value that a tool would have to provide in order for you to allocate engineering resources? Because any given investment in platform engineering is a trade-off against business logic, against logic that's actually going to drive your product forward in a way that is going to impact the customer. How do you organizationally trade off between resources allocated towards platform engineering versus business logic? Yeah. The interesting thing is I, I think you just almost answered the question right there. This is something that I actually hear a lot about talking with various engineering and DevOps leaders. And I think it's incredibly relevant to anyone building an enterprise infrastructure startup today. If you're building an enterprise infrastructure startup today and you're building a bottoms-up based or product-led go-to-market business base, you know, your users might be developers, your buyers are going to be someone most likely up the stack. That buyer is probably going to be either somebody in a platform engineering team or a DevOps IT team that's effectively fulfilling a similar type of role, an enterprise architect team that's building the platform that developers are going to use. So understanding the value proposition that that platform engine or, platform or IT platform team is looking for is going to be extremely important in the sale that you're trying to make in creating a customer. So in talking to these teams, I think one of the biggest pain points that's actually come out of the cloud native world today is how much focus has been shifted away from business logic. And this, so if you look at the CNCF landscape today, the last count that I looked at, there's 1,200 and something, 1,287 tools, I think it was, in the CNCF landscape. That's incredible. I mean, it's incredible, A, from the amount of innovation out there, but it's also kind of incredible because if you're an engineer who wants to go and build code that serves a purpose for your company, the amount of tools that you have to integrate to get the job done is in, in order to actually focus on building what you want to build, it just drains away from the time that you actually need to do to focus on business logic. And then that's just and that's just talking about like backend and front-end tools that you actually need to solve a problem. That doesn't even consider the tools that you need to do for workflow and processes. So, you know, whether it's working in GitHub for checking in your code, whether it's working in developers and things like Figma or InVision, or whether it's you know working in Jira or, or tools like that from a project management standpoint. Or actually, I even forgot, if you're working in remote tools, you're working with things like Slack or Zoom in order to just get meetings done. So just the amount of things you actually have to do before you can actually write code to focus on business logic is kind of ridiculous in today's world. So now go back to that platform engineering team and put yourself in their heads. What are they trying to actually accomplish if they're trying to make their 
their teams of developers on the other side successful. The main thing that they're now trying to think about is how can I make my teams focus the most on what they need to do, which is on business logic. So my take there is that the most successful next generation of tools are the ones that allow developers to actually focus most on business logic. So it's actually abstracting away the levels of complexity of tools and interfaces as much as possible. So I have this theory around what I call developer augmentation, which is how can you let developers focus the least on integrations between tool sets? How can you stitch together sets of tools, automate repetitive tasks so developers can focus on key workflows? That's what I would say to anybody who's building new tools today. Focus on how, if you're going to sell to that platform engineering team, the value proposition you can think of is how can your, those developers that you're actually building as your users, how can they make it fire and forget? Right? How can they actually build on that business logic? That's what I would err towards. I think the previous generation in cloud native, as we were building the primitives of the cloud native world, was around complexity because we were building that first layer of tools to make cloud native successful. That was day one for cloud native. We've kind of hit cloud native day two, where we actually need to operationalize this technology in production. And that means, I think, from a developer standpoint, you need to make developers successful so they can focus on business logic. So that means abstracting away that complexity. And give any examples of companies that fit that bill? There's a bunch of companies on the engineering effectiveness side that are just starting to hit the workflows. You know, there's companies like Uplevel and Pinpoint and that are focused on sort of providing metrics for, for engineers. I think there's companies that, that have been around for a little while, like If This Then That, that right. have been about stitching together workflows, or Zapier that have been about you know, integrating APIs between across each other. So I think those are sort of early examples of that trend. But I think the other interesting example of this, by the way, is there's been a lot of focus on low-code and no-code tools. And a lot of people have been focused on low-code and no-code tools as a way of bringing people who don't know how to code into the coding world, which I think is fair. But actually talking to a lot of engineering folks, a lot of people I know are engineers who use low-code tools as a way to do tasks that they don't really want to spend a lot of time on. Really? Yeah. So it's a way of automating certain sets of tasks effectively in a, in a quick manner so they can focus on higher level work. Which Have you really had a number of conversations? Substantial yes. number of conversations? Really? Which I thought was like, not no code, mind you, but low code tools. Not like drag and drop interfaces, but more, more low code tools, which I thought was like really like interesting. What, what does it work? Can you give me an anecdote? Some engineer you talked to that used some low code thing to do X. There's, I mean, there's, there's so many low code tools out there. I don't know if I could give like a ton of examples. I mean, there's so, so many companies out there. You, you might have heard of like Dark, for example. I think you had yeah, uh, yeah. the minor show. Like that, that's an example of a tool that I've, I've heard to, that's been used in this manner to create examples. You know, companies like Glitch have been using this example. You know, we made an investment in a company that's been using this example. So there's like a ton of different companies within the low code world that have been used for this. So I actually think it's like super fascinating because it's not, it's not something I would have expected. I mean, I agree with you. It makes sense. I mean, I I just talked to the Parabola founder. Yeah. But what I just wonder is... You've heard of like uh, Retool. Sure, yeah. There's a couple other companies within this sort of internal tooling space. It's yeah. actually a really good example of this use case. So these companies are all focused around building internal tooling really quickly. And so the idea is like internal tools usually are pretty 
simple, right? They're usually like a series of quick spreadsheets or databases with a UI built on top. They're not anything super complicated, but they need to be done, right? And so why would you spend a ton of engineering resources to build them at scale if you could use a low-code tool to get that done quickly? That's a good example of this use case. Right. I understand this philosophically, hypothetically, rhetorically, but realistically, I want to talk to the engineers who I guess I need to talk, find some like customer use cases or something. Cause like what I'm trying to understand is I get it that these things are most likely the future. The question is, when is that future arriving? When are there going to be enough people that are building internal tools five, 10 years, you know, is it going to be five or 10 years out or is it tomorrow? Or like, you know, I get it that spreadsheet workflows are bad and yeah. we should probably be, you know, working at a higher level of abstraction, but like, do the people who are working with spreadsheets, like those are the people who are voting with their feet. Are they actually going to be adopting low code tools? I mean, having worked in a couple of different enterprise companies and startups, I mean, I know engineers who've built these kinds of internal tools and these kind of workflows and it sucks, right? And, and so I've seen the use cases myself and having talked to enough leaders, I know that things like these are a problem. It's not just internal tools. So there are like there are other use cases I've heard of. But I will say that as applications continue to get more complex and more distributed, there's enough low-level work that's being you know, that has the potential to be automated further, I think. And I think the analogy you made around Ruby on Rails is an interesting one. What well, ultimately like what did Ruby on Rails do? It allowed you to quickly construct together an app right? A web app. And some people criticize that, hey, you, you know, it, it kind of put together a magic that shouldn't have been put together and it, it, it abstracts away things that you shouldn't abstract. But I mean, yeah, you could be encoding an assembly, I guess, at a certain point. I think as applications become further and further more distributed, you're going to be doing the same thing. You're going to be automating key pieces of tasks. And that's kind of the bet that you're making with these tools. So I think that's the use case of low-code or these kinds of toolings. Again, I think low-code is just an example and just a nomenclature. So you know, I'm looking more broadly at what are the kinds of tools that can be used to automate repetitive tasks within sort of the engineering and product development world. This could apply for UX and for product managers too. And there's a lot of repetitive tasks across the product development world. And so how can you automate that and allow people to focus on business logic? Back to your initial question of like, what would a platform engineering or a DevOps manager or VP really look for as a value prop? Yeah, but so as an investor though, like let's say, you know, cool looking low code tool comes into your office and gives you a pitch and they say, look, we've got, you know, five customers that are startups in Silicon Valley, and we have one POC that's a manufacturing company in the Midwest that uses us for workflows. My question is, how do you figure out whether that's enough to extrapolate to being an actual significant market that can be expanded? Like, are people ready to adopt this? Or how do you even, I guess my my question would be, how do you size the market that's ready to to get these tools? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, to take a step back for a second, the way I sort of evaluate investments is around kind of four distinct areas in this order. It's people, potential, product, and progress. 
ultimately any investment is around the people themselves and an evaluation of the people. That's at the early stage where I invest seed series A, the people are the most important thing and they're the ones who are going to take it. So that's where I'm spending the vast majority of my time. The second one is the potential and, the, and you know, how, how big can this really get? Market sizing is an interesting question. There's a reason I call it potential and not purely market sizing because it may not be a big market now, but the market could expand Right. And, and it may be a big market, but it might be constrained in various ways. And you have to think through a lot of those angles. So you can look at a market top down or bottoms up. Top down is you go look at some analyst report, IDC Gartner. It says, that, you know, the market was this many billions and you, we are this 10% of this market and we'll take that bite. And that's how big we are. That's usually that tends not to be, in my view, a very good way to approach the market unless it's a really traditional market which most of our investments typically aren't. Maybe at a later stage it is, but at the early stage, that's usually not the case. Even in, in not in our stage, if you looked at, say, a company like Uber back or Lyft, one of our investments at the Series A, back when it came out and you're like, you know, the on-demand car market is this big, you, you probably wouldn't have made that investment, right? Same thing like the like the Kubernetes market is this big and back in, you know, when we, we invested in Rancher back in the day, you wouldn't have said it was that there was that market. So what do you do then? You look at what I call sort of the bottoms up approach, which is taking a parallel of how many, the type of buyer that could eventually build this market at scale, how many of those buyers are there at scale? And then as this market grows, how can you expand that market? You know, and where could this have the potential to be? So let's take your example of this, you know, theoretical internal tooling market. This company may have one customer now. But let's say you believe that, you know, there is a, you know, going from user to buyer that the buyer for this internal tooling market is the platform internal, you know, the internal platform engineering tool. I'm not saying that it actually is, but let's say for this theoretical argument that it's a platform engineering tool within a more traditional company that doesn't necessarily have a strong engineering team to go build tools theoretical argument. Then you can go and say, okay, how many of these companies are there out there? within say the US. There are X number of companies, there are a thousand companies, there are 10,000 companies. Then you can start making some theoretical estimates of what are kind of the rough deal sizes that each of those companies could pay you. Is it a thousand companies that'll pay you, you know, 100K annual contracts, roughly, or annual recurring revenue? If you can get a thousand companies to pay you 100K a year, you know, that's a, I'm not too good at math, unfortunately, as an investor, that's a, that's a bad thing, but I can pay you a hundred million dollars a year, right? That's a, that's a doable, that's a large scale company. That's something that's interesting at venture scale. So that's the kind of things that I'm, you know, that I'm trying to think through when I'm looking at an investment. So is it, you know, is it a, is it a thousand companies paying you a hundred, a hundred K a year? Is it 10,000 companies paying you 10 K a year? Is it 100,000 companies paying you 1K a year? What is the kind of scale that it looks like doing a bottoms up sizing? That's how you think through something like potential. And then next step, you start looking at the product and assess the product. Someone like me with a product background, you know, I can take a deeper look at that. And then the final thing you look at the early stage is the, is the actual progress of the company. You know, what have they achieved in terms of traction? But ultimately, if you're looking at the early stage, the early, early innings of the company, that's actually the least important thing. The others are the far more important part. Let's talk through more of the tactics of building a infrastructure company. You know, talking about low-code tools or internal tool building is not exactly where you spend most of your time, I think. I think you spend most of your time more on the infrastructure side, the, the a little bit lower level. And in that domain, you're largely looking at companies that are what I might call 
point solution providers. Like basically these are companies that are building infrastructure products that are not AWS or Google Cloud or Azure. They are companies that are not actual cloud providers. They're building a logging solution or a database or some particular tool within infrastructure. Tell me about the competitive dynamics between a point solution provider and AWS. As a point solution provider, how do you build enough of a product following to have a successful company? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And I will I will answer that, but I'll I'll give a little caveat in terms of what's a point solution. I think really like when you're looking at inventure, you're looking for companies that want to have big outcomes either, you know, that are going to build really, you know, big companies like whether it's going for an IPO or or a big exit. That means Something that's building a small point solution won't necessarily be successful. I think most big companies are ultimately building platforms. So it's not just a point solution solving a small problem. I think ultimately every large successful company is building a true platform. Even they're not necessarily building an AWS, like an entire cloud provider, but they're still building a platform. And I think that's ultimately what what provides that level of differentiation. So we'll we'll get there. But I just wanted to make that distinction between what's a point solution, which is you're solving a single use case that does something specific. And then there's a continuum between that to a platform which solves a set of use cases. And then you build an ecosystem and you build a sustained community and set of integrations and vendors all the way to your AWS, Azure, GCP, and you're building an entire cloud provider. So there is a bit of a, a continuum there. So let's 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 sort of set that. So the question was, you know, how then how do you how do you go about and and you know build a successful business that, you know, in, in the face of the cloud giants, which I think is every every company in the infrastructure world is is sort of facing that. Ultimately I think I think it comes to, you know, innovation. Every startup thinks that thinks thinks through this within this space. You have to build a product that ultimately out-innovates. If, if you're going to build something that the cloud vendors can potentially pick up on, you need to out-innovate against the cloud vendor. That's the single truth within, you know, within the startup infrastructure world. And that can be done in a couple of different ways. If you build an open source project that the cloud, a cloud vendor can go and build an open source project on top of, then you either need to have the expertise on top of that to go and build, you know, either a core proprietary features or a better host experience or something else that allows you to provide innovative features on top of that that make you more successful. Or you need to build in an area where the cloud vendor doesn't necessarily have as much critical experience. So for example, you know, there haven't been as many, you know, security or core monitoring features on a lot of the core a lot of the cloud platforms. That's an example of something that there have been a ton of innovations within the startup world. There haven't been as many cloud vendor-related platforms in um, workflow-related companies. You might think of things like PagerDuty, for example, or anything that works within how product development teams actually go about doing, you know, doing their business with and getting things done. So those are examples of how you can build innovation and sort of proprietary IP that's different than what the cloud vendors can do. I think ultimately it just comes down to out innovating and out executing. This is what a startup does best. So you find a core value proposition, that's what you're good at. You out innovate and execute, you build something there. And then again, once you focus on there, you and out and, and you build and build a core business and do it extremely well, once you've built that to a certain scale, this is on that continuum where you can go ahead and go out and build a platform. 
What is a platform? A platform is where, again, you've built out a set of use cases and you've built an ecosystem. That ecosystem consists of a set of dedicated users and it consists of integrations with the existing outside world. That outside world can include the cloud vendors. It'll include other vendors as well. That's how you build sustainability within your business. I think if you look at all the major infrastructure players out there that have been successful, they've done this really well. And so I think that's, that's again, how, how you compete in this business. The reasons that companies default to AWS over point solutions, like the companies that go all in on AWS, does it have to do more with IAM policies and the fact that you can easily adopt AWS tools more easily than some product outside of the AWS ecosystem? Like, you know, if I'm all in on AWS, it's really easy for me to glue stuff together with AWS Lambda. You know, why would I go with CockroachDB when I can go with whatever the AWS equivalent is that has easy hooks for Lambda and easy hooks for my IAM policies? Why would I do anything other than go all in on AWS if I'm even slightly in on AWS? Or is it more about like, do people just like trust AWS more and they, they, you know, they trust, they know the name AWS more than they know the name CockroachDB? Why do people go all in on AWS rather than stitching together point solutions together with AWS? I think this is why as a startup and as a founder, it's really, really important to understand who your target user is and actually really importantly, who your target user is not. So there's always going to be a community of folks who they're all in on the AWS platform for simplicity, right? They've started using AWS products. There's other AWS products that integrate with AWS products. To your point, if you've already integrated with IAM as a company, if you're a small shop, you know, that is a single, a single vendor that runs everything within AWS, within, you know, AWS availability zones, you know you're going to use AWS-related products. You have no desire to build across multiple clouds. You have no on-prem presence. It doesn't matter to you whether you're running other tools. You go to Amazon's reInvent, you see new AWS tools, they just work for you. You're probably the wrong audience for a startup that's talking about multi-cloud or that's talking about other value propositions. As a startup, you need to recognize that that's not your core audience and that not going after that audience, that going after that audience is going to be a waste of your time. So understanding who your core audience is and who your core audience is not is critically important. And so I think there's always going to be that audience that exists and then finding the audience that fits your key value propositions, whether multi-cloud is the right value proposition or whether it's not, whether there's some other key value props that you're looking for. HIPAA compliance, for example, and security might be something that I am won't, like, won't be the right value prop for is something that you should be considering. Legacy enterprises have so much inertia when it comes to on-prem workflows if you go to KubeCon or you go to AWS reInvent, you can have conversations with large enterprises that are adopting cloud slowly but steadily. What I don't understand is how rapidly these legacy enterprises are adopting cloud and what kinds of workloads they are comfortable adopting and and what are the kinds of workloads that are just fine to run on the data centers that they've already invested in? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, the traditional answer used to be that 
so-called legacy enterprises, traditional enterprise organizations, were uncomfortable running primary applications, OLTP, et cetera, in the cloud, and would only run, at first it was only SaaS applications, Salesforce and things like that were the only things that would run in the cloud. And then it was, you do backups in the cloud, and then only secondary applications. And then it was only cloud-native applications would be built in the cloud. And back when I started at Docker, this was the thing. So all traditional existing applications would run on-prem, and then only greenfield applications would run in the cloud. And now what we're starting to hear, I, I, I spend a lot of time talking with CIOs and CTOs, we're starting to hear that workloads are being shifted to the cloud, brownfield workloads are being shifted to the cloud for cost reasons. A lot of traditional enterprises are under the gun to reduce CapEx and to reduce OpEx. So there is an opportunity to move workloads to the cloud. And that's an opportunity also for startups, for, for tools that help make it easy to, to either shift in migration or to make to policy management, to do security management, et cetera. That is an opportunity. Though, you know, the caveat of that as you're thinking through building your GTM pipeline is that selling to traditional enterprise is a different ballgame than selling to mid-market or selling to, you know, selling to smaller companies. It's a longer sales cycle, typically involves building a direct sales team and selling in a more top-down fashion. So that that's something to consider. What kind of a GTM model are you really building? And, you know, early on in your company life cycle, I would very, very strongly consider like what, what kind of company is it? If you're doing a bottoms up model with inside sales, can you really build a fast velocity that you want if you're selling to global 2000 customers immediately? What are the biggest lessons we can learn from HashiCorp? Good question. Yeah. So for those who don't know where I'm at, we were the Series A investors in Hashi. And I think Hashi has done obviously incredibly well in, in the last several years. I think there's there's a couple of extremely key lessons that, and, and working with Mitchell, Armand, co-founders, as well as Dave, the CEO, has been, has been incredible. There's some very key lessons. So I'll start with one of the biggest things is the incredible balance and transparency between the community and the commercial. HashiCorp has built amazing community presence. Uh, but they've also been, and this has been shown across the sort of GitHub presence. It's been shown at the conferences with HashiConf. It's been shown with sort of the dedication that Mitchell and Armand and the team have both on Twitter and, 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 and on GitHub in talking with the community. They've also been very transparent on where they engage with the community and where the commercial side is. And a good example is that they made clear that much of the website is devoted to talking about the commercial product and the engagement with the community is primarily around GitHub. And they made very clear that that's where the dividing line is. There's no obfuscation that these two things are different. It's just very clear that that, that dividing line is there. And, you know, there's a commercial part that needs that needs to be there to keep the business success, keep the business running. But you know, HashiCorp serves the needs of the community and is dedicated to the community, and that community is mostly served through GitHub, and and that's where developers live for the most part. So that's okay. And so having that sort of dual dedication, but having that transparency around the two has been incredibly successful. So I think that's one. Two, and this is one of the lessons that I actually bring to any founder that I talk with is despite having that transparency around the two, the teams around community and commercial are heavily integrated. So there's no dividing line between community and commercial teams. So the same product team that's making community decisions is making commercial decisions. I think this is incredibly important. When you're building a company, 
don't have a community product manager, for example, and a commercial product manager. You should have one team and that is making the decision or, or a community product team and a commercial product team. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Have one team that's making those decisions. And the reason for this is clear. You don't want to have like dividing roadmaps that are going in different directions. You don't want to have somebody that doesn't understand and have empathy for the needs of the community or ha understands the community but doesn't have empathy for the enterprise or vice versa. You may have like people with different expertises, but they should be on the same team and talking with each other regularly. And so you can have that cross-cultural DNA. So I actually advise when you have a product team, people should have a vertical specialization. So maybe they have like one person owns a product and then decides what goes in commercial versus community, free versus paid, for example, within, you know, within that product. So I think Hashi has done that extremely well. So that's sort of one side within that. I think the other really, so aside from that sort of dedication on both the community and the commercial front and doing that in a transparent fashion and doing that in an integrated fashion, the other key, key thing that the company has done really well is in building an extremely, extremely effective go-to-market, bottoms-up go-to-market pipeline. I think this is one of the most effective things within the company's success in going from startup to, to you know, successful organization. Happy to, happy to expand on that. That's helpful. Yeah, sure. Talk in more detail. So actually, it might help if I give an example of, of a specific product, I think. So you're familiar with Vault. Of course. Yeah. So Secret management. Yeah, exactly. So for those who don't know, so Vault is a secrets management platform based on a key management store. Effectively, the way in which most people do secrets management in distributed clusters today. So... Here's how Vault, and Vault is a extremely successful open source and commercial product today. Here's what the go-to-market pipeline effectively for Vault looks like and what has made it successful. So Vault has an open source and a commercial component. Open source developers download and use Vault, primarily from GitHub, and download and use it. And it has a very, what I call, critical path value proposition, right? You use it for managing your secrets. Secrets are important things. They could be your passwords to your database. They could be whatever runs your application. So I use this term critical path value proposition. For me, that is something that is solves a fundamental pain point for your user, something that is so important that it is designed into the user's workflow. So in this case, open source users use it. They can't exist without it. It gets used for, say, one, one user and developer within their on their local machine. That has become so popular that now within a company, every developer is now using it within their distributed clusters across the entire company. So now it's been designed into every cluster and workflow across the entire company. This has now become critical path. This has become something that's so important to the company that is critical architecture. Now, this is the key part. So the IT organization comes in, looks at this and sees, okay, there is this critical path piece that is so important to my architecture. I really don't have a choice but to support this. And Vault sort of markets to this, or HashiCorp, I should say, markets to this to this buyer and says, hey, this is a really important architecture. All your, you know, all your open source users are, are using this. Wouldn't you like to be able to support your developers and make them successful? And this, I think, is the second part of the key insight. So in a bottoms-up business, you know, you're not typically selling to your developers. Developers typically don't buy the product directly. You need to sell your, your you need, and importantly, I don't, the key insight here is I think your developers don't 
sell to your buyers. Developers don't sell to IT. Developers are passionate about products. Don't get me wrong. Developers are extremely passionate about products, but developers are not going to go to your IT folks and say, you need to buy this product. What you need to do as a company is find a reason to influence the buyer to offer the product on behalf of the user as a service. That is the key thing. So the company goes and markets to the buyer, the IT folks, and says, this is why you should offer Vault as a service to developers. The buyer, the IT folks then come inbound to Hashi, offers it as an, and then the, the inside sales team at Hashi then takes that and offers a commercial version of Vault. And there's a twofold part to this. Vault, then they can just drop in a license key and take the enterprise version of Vault, which is a proprietary, it's an open core model. So it, it is both supported and there are additional features on top, which sort of help sweeten the deal and make the sale that much easier. There's separate questions on whether you should have paid only support versus an open core model. We can get into that discussion as to sort of why you'd want to do open core or, or just go paid support. But sort of there, there's some lessons to be learned here. So one is, you know, building something that is a critical path value proposition to the user that's so effective that it virally spreads within the organization and becomes designed into the architecture and the workflow. The second is marketing to the buyer and influencing them to help them understand why they should offer this product as a commercial supported opportunity for the buyer, uh, for the user. So why they should offer, like why they should buy this product in order to help support the, the developer and the user. And then making it trivially easy for the buyer to upsell, right? So in the case of Vault, drop a license key, you have Vault Enterprise and it's an inside sale. There's no expensive field sales process. They just need to call in or a Zoom call. It's an inside sales process. Now, over time, now there's like a top-down sales process because Hashi's a big company. But for years, they just had an inside sales model and it worked very effectively. So this is sort of how you build a product-led GTM bottoms-up adoption model. And this is how Vault was able to build such incredible revenues over time. And this is a bottoms-up open source or open core strategy. Correct. Basically... You have Vault as an open source piece, random developers at a company pick it up, they start using it throughout the company, the product propagates throughout the company, gets used more and more, and over time, the company decides, okay, we we need to get the added enterprise features, we need to pay money for this thing, and you're pointing out that the transition from that open source tool to the paid tool should be very smooth. In this case, you you pick up a phone or take a Zoom call with a salesperson, you get a license key, and you drop in the license key, and it, voila, it becomes an enterprise distribution. That's really smooth. It's reminiscent of the, the Slack model, you know, Slack just propagating through a company, and then eventually a company saying, okay, we actually need to pay money for this so that we can search through old conversations or get, I don't know, other, other kinds of things. And then you have... You know, we were talking before the show about SNYK, or Sneak, the SNYK security company, which takes another bottoms-up form in the sense that it, it's kind of somewhere in between Slack and Vault in the sense that it's an infrastructure product, but it's closed source. And if I recall, basically their free system is vulnerability scanning tool that you integrate into your CI pipeline. You just create this CI step where might as well scan your code through SNCC's vulnerability database every time your CI pipeline runs. And that's that's a great 
free insertion point. And once you get that free insertion point, there's all kinds of opportunities for expanding there. So I think of that as kind of a another flavor of, of this bottoms-up model. Yeah, and by the way, you know, Snake has done incredibly well. They're one of the few examples of a bottoms-up security company. There's not many, and they've done extremely well, raised a, raised a big round recently. Kudos to, to, to the Snake team. You know, you actually phrased the bottoms-up process quite beautifully. It, it makes it sound really simple. I, I think there's a couple of key speed bumps that I think people need to be aware of in this process. The first is, you know, understanding, A, have you really built a critical value path proposition for the initial user in, in the open source or the free, in the case of a product like SNCC? Is what you're doing actually critical path? Is it solving a real fundamental value pain point for the user? It's kind of surprising how many products don't. Just because it's open source, even if it has like a lot of Docker pulls, doesn't mean it's actually solving a fundamental value pain point just because it's downloaded a lot. So that's that's a key thing. Are, you're familiar with like the vitamins versus painkillers discussion? Is that something uh, you've heard of? Sure. Vitamin is something that makes you do a little bit better, but it doesn't necessarily... You're not begging for it. The painkiller is what you're begging for. Yeah. I mean, like a vitamin sling you take every day, it might make you better. But if you forget to take it, it's not a big deal. If you forget to buy it from the pharmacy, like you can always get it the next day or in the next month even. Painkiller is something you need now. It solves a problem you have right now. And if you're not building a painkiller, you know, you're probably not building a good business. And so this is why, you know, having that empathy, even if you're not a product, a former product manager in, as a, in a startup, having that empathy for your user is so so critically important because you need to understand what that pain point is. And this is why talking to your users and also buyers, two different groups of people often, is really important. You need to understand the pain points and the value props for each group. So do you have that fundamental pain point right? Do you actually have it right? Are people actually using you for, and do you understand why they find you valuable to the point that you're actually designed across the organization? Are you actually spreading virally? That's a good question to ask because in open source, you may not actually have the metrics that you that you may not have telemetry. In SaaS, you often do. In open source, you don't. So how are you measuring your community correctly? So do you actually have that right? Then the next critical speed bump I think most people get wrong is the upsell in two different forms. One is, do you have enough value in your paid product? A lot of products fail because there's too much value in the open source. And I could get a lot of flack here for saying, you know, that uh, in sort of the open source versus paid discussion. But the, the truth remains is like if people see a lot of value in your open source product and decide that you're not worth paying for whatever reason, so be it, right? There are some businesses that have done very well on paid support. You know, Red Hat Linux is a good example from uh, RHEL. Elastic did quite well for many years on paid support. Rancher's done well on uh, within our portfolio on paid support. So it can be done. But to do that, you need to have a really good critical path value proposition that paid support is really important. That if this product fails, all, you know, all hell will break loose at the company. So you, have, you better be really, really confident in the value proposition, the, uh, you know, solving that fundamental pain point. But then the other ways, if that's not even if that's not the case, you know, building proprietary features is the other way in the enterprise product to ensure that an upsell matters. Are you building a strong enough enterprise product and continuing to innovate on the enterprise product in a way that drives people to upsell? And for me, I think enterprise value is driven by a couple different buckets. I think everybody's first enterprise product is like some combination of access control, RBAC, ABAC, et cetera, single sign-on like LDAP, SAML, and like a pretty UI. 
That's like everybody's 1.0 enterprise product. That was my enterprise, my 1.0 enterprise product. And they think that's what'll sell enterprise. Well, truth is, no, that's not, that's what gets you on the table. That's table stakes. That might get you a couple deals. That is not what fundamentally drives enterprise value. So you have to figure out what drives enterprise value. For me, I think there's, there's kind of three buckets. There's performance collaboration and peace of mind are the three primary buckets that drive enterprise value. There's individual features within those that really depends on the business you're in. So I, I think that's a, that's a lot, you know, that really depends on the area, but you have to really understand what drives value. What are you willing to put in the free versus paid bucket? And, you know, how are you constantly innovating? Cause things will keep shifting into open source. So what do you, how are you constantly innovating to make sure there's enough value that you upsell customers? And then the last key point of that is how do you make the upsell process painless, right? So, you know, I mentioned the point about dropping in a license key. You wouldn't believe how many open source folks require you to switch binaries, for example, when you're upselling to the enterprise product. And switching binaries is tough. Let's say you've got like 100 instances in an enterprise customer. Are you going to switch binaries on each of those instances? That's a lot of work. For a lot of enterprise customers, it'll be like, or a thousand instances of an on-prem product. You're just be like, that's not worth my time. I'll just keep what I have and support it. A drop in license queue or dropping, building your enterprise product in a way that just drops on top of the open source makes life a lot easier. Or if you're a SaaS-based product, this isn't even a problem like Slack. So that's another, you know, that's another potential easier upsell. So you have to think about how do you make the upsell process easy? The other final piece is just understanding the GTM, which is who is your user? What's the buyer? We talked about this earlier. How does the user influence the buyer? How do you market to the buyer? Way back at the beginning of this discussion, I talked about, we talked about in the platform engineering team and you know, how do you influence them? A lot of people think product-led GTM is if you build it, they will come. It's not. You better understand how marketing and sales really play into your discussion. So you need to be thinking about, I, I think marketing is one of the most underrated, product marketing in particular, is one of the most underrated skills in an early stage startup. And most founders don't have a product marketing background. So you need to be thinking early on in your company, how are you bringing that DNA in? So these are really important topics to be thinking about and how these speed bumps need to be approached as a part of your company lifecycle. I want to talk a little bit about the some of the investments you've made. Yeah, sure. As we begin to to wrap up, one of them is Dev Two, which I made a small investment in myself, and I'm really happy to see them doing so well. Early on in this business in software engineering daily, I was thinking a lot about what is the big business that could be built around developer media. And I remember talking to Ben in the early days. This was back in like 2015 or 2016. This is Ben Halpern, right? Ben, ben Halpern, who founded Dev. And we both had pretty similar ideas for it. The issue is, for me, I was making five podcasts per week and it was going well. And... I watched as he built a really good platform. He built, you know, a perpetuating platform because, you know, you'd obviously rather be in the platform business than the media business. I mean, in some sense, the platform business is much harder. You look at Medium, Medium is having some trouble. But the idea of a self-perpetuating content engine versus a Software Engineering Daily style treadmill of content. I just remember going back and forth in my head and, and with my early co-founder of Software Engineering Daily when we were talking about how does how do you build a software media 
business. And I think Ben really figured it out with Dev. And I'm just really proud of him and glad he let me invest. Describe the market from your point of view that Dev is serving. What does Practical Dev do for the developer audience? Yeah. And first of all, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're sort of co-investors with Dev. So it's great to be working with you on that one. I'm really excited about Dev for a number of reasons. Working with Peter, Ben, and Jess, or PBJ, as, as they often go by, they're, they're a trio of amazing co-founders. The energy they bring and their dedication to their community is just, it's amazing. And so working with them has been an absolute pleasure. So it's great to join the board and help them grow the company. So the market that they serve and the opportunity there is, is something quite unique. And so let's bring us back to sort of how, you know, I found the company and first started engaging with the team. Before I made the investment, I discovered dev.to. I discovered the website and started looking at it because you know, I've spent some time around the developer community coming, you know, coming from the software engineering and infrastructure world. There's a lot of platforms out there. And you know, if you look at some of the more places that have been around for a while, you look at you know, Reddit, Hacker News, or, or what have you, a lot of times there's what I'd call a, a certain level of toxicity or gatekeeping. The church announces you put up something and, and people, there's often, you know, people will give an answer, uh, the upvote or downvote answers, they will, there, there's an expectation based on, you know, what you know, where you come from, like what computer languages, I mean, to say you speak or what you're proficient in, what background you have in some cases, an antagonistic approach. Dev takes a fundamentally different approach. Dev takes the approach that no matter what background you come from, who you are, where you're from, if you call yourself a developer, you are a developer. And there's this just incredible positivity and energy that the community and culture brings and level of openness. And that's what is fundamentally driving dev.to and the movement around it. And that movement is also what drives the opportunity, I think, around the company. Because if you look at it, developers are coming from all kinds of different worlds today. They're not just coming from traditional four-year uh, CS degrees, right? From traditional universities. They're coming from coding boot camps. They're coming from people switching careers. You know, software is eating the world, right? But And that means people are coming coming from all kinds of different worlds. My degree was in material science. I actually wasn't a traditional software engineer. I, was, I studied semiconductor device physics. I came from hardware and I learned software in different ways. And so that's partially why dev resonated with me because if there was a place in dev for people who didn't come from software backgrounds, there was a place for me. So it, it instantly resonated with someone like me. And that's also, I think, what's attracting people to the platform. They have, you know, five and a half million users and growing rapidly from there. They're the fastest growing online platform for developers. I think that's where the initial opportunity for dev came, was this ability to build an open platform for developers to express and share ideas in a positive manner. And it's working. The retention rates are amazing. Engagement rates are amazing. Articles are growing really fast. And if you've met Ben and, and Peter and Jess, they're engaging the community across the platform itself and across Twitter and other areas is amazing. They're drawing people in. And recently they announced the acquisition of CodeNewbie, which basically helps bring in the ability to attract next generation developers. And you can see the synergies there. So it's just that mission is extremely strong. But there's a second 
actually a very, very important piece. And that's the fact that the actual platform that Dev is built on is an open source platform itself. This is actually extremely key. So Dev.to is an open source platform for building communities. So the same people who are both creating articles and engaging with communities within dev.to, the website and community, are the same people who are building a platform for building communities. So that in and of itself creates an opportunity for a platform that builds communities. And again, there's long-term sort of thoughts around, around where the opportunity is there. But in general, I think the opportunity for sort of dev.to is the ability to bring developers together across a number of different spectrums, whether it is no matter the personal background you come from, the educational background you come from, the languages, literally the the language you speak as a person or the computer languages that you write in, that opportunity to unify is something that I don't think any other media or otherwise platform has ever really done before effectively. And for us, the opportunity was just too good to ignore. And so I'm I'm super excited to be working with the team and to be helping them for that mission. And in particular, myself having worked with working as a part of and working with, you know, commercialized open source businesses, I, I just see a huge opportunity there. Agreed. Alchemy, which is a company around crypto infrastructure, is another investment that you worked on. What is your perspective for the useful applications of cryptocurrency? Yeah, so the background there is, so Alchemy is a platform for developers to more easily build decentralized applications. So it's less about the cryptocurrency aspects and more about the decentralized aspects. It's about building scalable and reliable decentralized apps in an easy fashion. So right now, building decentralized apps is not easy. If you're if ever taking a crack at it, it's, it's actually rather difficult. So the thing that the founders, Nikhil and Joe, realize is like the market for traditional crypto apps at, at the time was built around a core users who really understood crypto. And you can make parallels back to what I saw in the cloud native world in the early days, Building microservices, if you knew what you were doing, was was possible. But if you didn't know what you were doing, it was really, really freaking hard. And I think what the Alchemy founders, Nikhil and Joe, realized was there's an opportunity there to really open up the market to more traditional developers on how they can help build decentralized applications in a scalable and reliable fashion in an easy way. So for me, the opportunity was less so about the finance aspects. Again, I'm an IT infrastructure person. I'm not really a finance person. So my thoughts have always been around where is the infrastructure world headed? We've seen this transition from mainframe applications to you know client server architecture to sort of virtualized client server with you know VMs and vSphere to semi distributed applications in the cloud native world i mean you look at something like kubernetes it's still a master worker architecture with a semi decentralized structure you see this opportunity for decentralized applications. And I think the opportunity is still very early, don't get me wrong. But if you look at it, there are opportunities getting brighter and brighter with the increased focus of the edge. 
I think, in, in particular. If you look at more and more edge applications, whether it's with 5G or with industrial automation, that's where I think I see a lot of possibilities on decentralized apps. Another interesting use case I've actually started seeing is, is GDPR compliance, which is interesting. Like you need to have data stored in different places and applications running in different instances, and they need to run relatively independently. So for that to happen, the applications intelligence needs to be stored independently as well. That doesn't really work in a cloud-native world because cloud-native worlds need to be structured still in a centralized fashion. Managers are run centrally. And actually, interestingly, when I was at Docker, we'd get requests for, hey, can we stretch our clusters across different AZs and geographies? I was like, your latency, <laughs> it's not going to work from a latency perspective. Your shifts in latency are like Kubernetes, Swarm, et cetera, aren't really built for that. So there are use cases by which decentralized apps become interesting over time. And I don't think it's going to fully replace in any way what cloud native is doing, just as cloud native is not going to fully replace what client server is doing, just like what client server never fully replaced what mainframe is doing. Contrary to popular belief, there's still a bunch of mainframes out there that are running, you know, just fine. So the use cases are there. And knowing that those use cases are there, you're going to need a way for traditional developers to be able to build those kind of apps in a way that they understand easily. And you're going to need to build out the tooling for monitoring, for management, et cetera. And that's what Nikhil and Joe and the team at Alchemy are doing effectively. And so that's what we saw the opportunity. we got to wrap up. I really enjoyed this conversation, though. Last question. What has surprised you about becoming an investor? Hmm. That's a good question. I think there's a couple of things that have surprised me. I think the biggest thing is you can really differentiate yourself as an investor by how much you're actually willing to help entrepreneurs. This actually surprised me and how earnest you are about being willing to help entrepreneurs. I got into this business because ultimately I want to help people build things at scale. So I started my career as a materials engineer, semiconductor device physics. And then I, I moved to software product management in infrastructure. And then I'm a venture investor in infrastructure. My life's mission is to help other people build the things that people used to build bigger things. And so I didn't get into this business to do deals, so to speak. I got into this business to help other people. And so I spend a lot of my time on the, like helping people with everything from product strategy, marketing strategy, sales and pricing, you know, hiring, what else it is. And to be clear, I don't just help the companies that I work with. I help a lot of the people that I just talk to on the, on the side. That's just what I do because it's what I like. And I think what I've learned is that, you know, within the limits of time, you'd be surprised, at least from what I've seen, is how much that can help differentiate at least, or, or how much people appreciate that and how much that can differentiate you if you're earnest about actually providing help and helping people get things done. That surprised me, but it's what I like doing. And I think as an investor, I have a philosophy. It's something, it's what I call being a servant investor. It's about using a combination of, you're familiar with the concept of servant leadership. I've heard it. It's basically where you you work for your people, your people don't work for you. Anyone who's ever been a product manager knows this concept pretty well because product managers don't have any real power. Product managers don't manage other people. Product managers only have as much power as they have their ability to influence others. 
you are the voice of the customer and you bring data to the table and you help make other people more effective by helping shape the product and helping the engineering team and the design team and others getting the product built. That's what product management is. And while VCs in some cases have official power in the form of the board, I think that a good VC is like a good product leader. I think a good VC is someone who brings a combination of their values and experience, but also a sense of humility and the ability to work quietly in the background to help get things, whatever the entrepreneur needs to help get things done. And that's sort of the attitude that I like to bring with the folks that I bring. The analogy that I use is I'm a big fan of comic books and sci-fi and fantasy. It's kind of like being the Alfred Pennyworth to a founder's Batman or Batwoman. And that's sort of the attitude that I take. It's you're not the center of attention. You're the one who's helping them get the work done. That's the butler that hangs out underground? That's the butler that hangs out underground. Okay. That's the way that I think about it. But I guess what's surprising about being an investor is, you know, if you're earnestly willing to help people and bring sort of whatever you have to bring to the table and you actually put those cars down, people do appreciate it. Vivek, thanks for coming on the show. Jeff, thank you for having me. 